Welcome everyone and thank you so much for joining us and accepting this invitation for our Bible study and reflection on March 1st, 2023. Let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God and most heavenly Father, Open our eyes and ears to see and hear your holy word, especially during this season of Lent. Open our hearts to accept the love that you pour out to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, at our house, we have a set of glasses um, that are made by the Rolf Glass Company. That's R-O-L-F. And etched into every glass is a school of fish, and they're all swimming in the same direction, except for one little fish that is swimming in the opposite direction. Now, I'm sure you've heard and familiar with the term, go along to get along. Well, this one little fish is definitely not going along to get along. He's not following the bigger school of fish. You know, this fish reminds me of Jesus and specifically how countercultural he was. At the time of his ministry, there were two schools of fish that he had to contend with. One was the Roman Empire, and the other being the Jewish religious leaders. We have one reading today from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The Old Testament reading is from the book of Zechariah, where he prophesies about the coming of the king. Of Zion. The second reading is from the book of Luke, and it fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now, after our two readings today, I'm going to share a sermon delivered by N.T. Wright at University Chapel on April 17, 2011. Now, you might think I'm getting a little ahead of myself because we're still quite a ways from Palm Sunday. And that's when N.T. Wright delivered this sermon, was Palm Sunday. But I really think this is something we should all ponder as we walk through our Lenten journey this year. First reading comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 16. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. 
The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as he shepherds, as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Now our second reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 41. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and, you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went ahead and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And now for the sermon that was preached on Palm Sunday, April 17th, 2011. And I think this is a wonderful story that depicts the political and religious cultures that Jesus stepped into during Holy Week some 2,000 years ago. And his sermon begins. The crowd went wild as they got nearer. This was the moment they'd been waiting for. All the old songs came flooding back, and they were singing, chanting, cheering, and laughing. At last, their dreams were going to come true. But in the middle of it all, their leader wasn't singing. He was in tears. Yes, their dreams were indeed coming true, but not in the way they were imagining. He was not the king they expected, not like the monarchs of old who sat on their jeweled and ivory thrones, dispensing their justice and wisdom. Nor was he the great warrior king some had wanted. He didn't raise an army to ride to battle at its head. He was riding on a donkey, and he was weeping, weeping for the dream that had to die, weeping for the sword that was pier pierce his supporters to their soul weeping for the kingdom that wasn't coming as well as the kingdom that was. What was it all about? What did Jesus think he was doing? On this Palm Sunday, Jesus was riding into the middle of a perfect storm. 
You remember the story of the famous perfect storm. It was late October 1991. A New England fishing boat by the name of Andrea Gale had sailed 500 miles out into the Atlantic, but the weather was changing rapidly. A cold front moving along the U.S.-Canada border sent a strong disturbance through New England, while at the same time a large high-pressure system was building over the maritime provinces of southeastern Canada. This intensified the incoming low-pressure system, producing what locals called the Halloween Nor'easter. These circumstances alone could have created a strong storm, but then, like throwing petrol on a fire, a hurricane coming in from the Atlantic brought incalculable tropical energy to the mix. The forces of nature converged on the helpless Andrea Gale from the west, the north, and the southeast. Ferocious winds and huge waves reduced the boat to matchwood. Only small pieces of debris was ever found. There had, of course, been earlier perfect storms, but this was the one made famous by a book and a movie which took that phrase as their title. Now, the first two elements of Jesus' perfect storm are comparatively easy to describe. The third, less so but all important, if we are to understand both the original meaning of Palm Sunday and the meanings it might have for us in our own pilgrimage to the foot of the cross in this holiest of weeks. To begin with, the storm sweeping in from the west, the new social, political, and not least military reality of the day, the new superpower, Rome. Rome had been steadily increasing in power and prominence over the previous centuries. Until 30 years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, Rome had been a republic. But with Julius Caesar, all that changed. His ambition and then his assassination threw Rome into a long, bloody civil war from which Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, emerged as the winner. He took the title Augustus, which meant majestic or worthy of honor. He declared that his adopted father, Julius, had become divine. This meant that he, Augustus Octavian Caesar, was now officially son of God, son of the divine Julius. The word went round the world, which Rome was quickly conquering. Good news, we have an emperor. The Son of God has become king of the world. After Augustus' death, he too was divinized, and his successor, Tiberius, took the same titles. And N.T. Wright goes on to say, I have on my desk a coin from the reign of Tiberius. On the front around Tiberius's portrait, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the back is Tiberius portrayed, and described as chief priest. It was a coin much like this that they showed to Jesus of Nazareth not long after he had ridden into Jerusalem. When they asked him whether or not they should pay tribute to Caesar, son of God, high priest, he was at the eye of the storm. Why was Rome interested in the Middle East? For surprisingly familiar reasons. Rome needed the Middle East like today's Western powers need it for raw material. 
Today it's oil, then it was grain. Rome itself was grossly overpopulated. Grain shipments from Egypt were vital. In a region just as unstable in the first century as today, the job of a Roman governor was to administer justice, collect the taxes, and keep the peace, and particularly to suppress unrest. That was the first gale, the first element in the perfect storm at whose center Jesus of Nazareth found himself. The second great element in Jesus' perfect storm, the overheated, high-pressure system, is the story of Israel as Jesus' contemporaries perceived it and believed themselves to be living in it. As far back as we can trace their ancient scriptures, the Jewish people had believed that their story was going somewhere, that it had a goal in mind. Despite many setbacks and disappointments, their God would make sure that they reached the goal at last. The stories they told were not simply stories of small beginnings, sad times at present, and glorious days to come. They were more specific, more complex, dense with detail and heavy with hope. Their theme came to full flower in the story of the Exodus, when Moses had led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, across the Red Sea, and through the desert to their promised land. The Jews lived on hope that it would happen again. The tyrants would do their worst, and God would deliver them. Understand the Exodus, and you understand a good deal about Judaism and about Jesus. Jesus chose Passover, the great national Exodus festival, to make his crucial move. The long story of Israel must finally confront the long story of Rome. This is no time to be out on the sea in an open boat, or riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The western wind meets the high-pressure system. What about the hurricane? The Jews, the Jesus, excuse me, the Jewish story always contained one highly unpredictable element, namely God himself. God remained free and sovereign. Again and again in the past, the way Israel had told its own story was different from the way God was planning things. Jesus believed that that was happening again now. God had promised to come back, to return to his people in power and glory, to establish his kingdom on earth, as in heaven. The Jewish people always hoped that this would simply underwrite their national aspirations. He was, after all, their God. But the prophets, up to and including John the Baptist, had always warned that God's coming in power and in person would be entirely, entirely on his own terms, with his own purpose, and that his own people would be as much under judgment as anyone in their, if their aspirations didn't coincide with God's. Jesus believed, we heard it in our second reading, that as he came to Jerusalem, he was embodying, incarnating the return of Israel's God to his people in power and glory. But it was a different kind of power, a different kind of glory. Remember that moment in Jesus Christ Superstar? Produced when Tim Rice was still writing shrewd, sharp lyrics and Andrew Lloyd Webber was still writing interesting music, 
when Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and Simon the Zealot urges him to mount a proper revolution. You'll get the power and the glory, he says, forever and ever. Jesus turns and sings those haunting lines. Neither you, Simon, nor the 50,000, nor the Romans, nor the Jews, nor Judas, nor the 12, nor the priest, nor the scribes, nor doomed Jerusalem itself understand what power is, understand what glory is, understand it at all. And then he continues with the warning we heard in our second lesson, the warning of what was going to happen to Jerusalem. Because as he says, you didn't recognize the time of your visitation by God. This is the moment and you were looking the other way. Your dreams of national liberation leading you into head-on confrontation with Rome were not God's dreams. God called Israel so that through Israel he might redeem the world, but Israel itself needs redeeming as well. Hence, God comes to Israel riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy of the coming peaceful kingdom announcing judgment on the system and the city that have turned their vocation in upon themselves and going off to take the weight of the world's evil and hostility onto itself so that by dying under it, he might exhaust its power. All his public career, Jesus had been embodying the rescuing, redeeming love of Israel's God. And Israel's own capital city and leaders couldn't see it. The divine hurricane sweeps in from the ocean, and to accomplish its purpose, it must meet head-on the cruel western wind of pagan empire and the high-octane, high-pressure system of national aspiration. Jesus seizes the moment, the Passover moment, the Exodus moment, not least because these, two speak to the sovereign freedom and presence of God as much over his rebellious and incomprehending people as over the tyranny of Egypt. And as we watch the events of Holy Week unfold, and as we share in them and make our own pilgrimage to the foot of the cross, we cannot simply look on and register them as an odd quirk of history. This was the perfect storm. This was where the hurricane of divine love met the cold might of empire and the overheated aspiration of Israel. Only when we pause and reflect on that combination do we begin to understand the meaning of Jesus' death. Only then may we understand how it is that the true Son of God, the true High Priest, has indeed become King of the world. But second, a much more personal note for this Holy Week. Take up your cross, said Jesus, and follow me. And as we do so often find ourselves caught up in our own micro-versions of the perfect storm, we are subject first to all the usual pressures of the wider world, of contemporary culture. If you want to get on in the world, you've got to play the game this way. Many of you will find soon enough that the prices of getting on in the world sense may be your own integrity. We have seen it in the last two years, embarrassing collapses of integrity in Parliament, 
in the banking system, in journalism, and there may be more to come. But the world will go on insisting that you should play by its rules, rules which are increasingly hard-nosed as secular pragmatism sweeps old-fashioned moralism out of the way. That is one element in our own perfect storms. The second is, of course, that you yourself have your own aspirations and expectations. You want to get a degree, you want to get a job, and you want to earn some money. Perhaps you want to get married. Fine. Somehow you're going to have to navigate the choppy and increasingly stormy waters where all those normal and natural things meet the sharp, often heartless, wind of contemporary culture. How we prevent our own aspirations being merely self-centered. As we walk through Holy Week, we should be aware of and should be praying for the third element. Where is God in all of this? Woe to us if we merely invoke God to back up our own ambitions and aspirations. Woe to us doubly if we imagine we can find God simply in the spirit of the age. These are the two weather systems with which we all, we live in all the time. But we are called this week to open ourselves to the third one. Again and again, if we try to follow Jesus in faith and hope and love on his journey to the cross, we will find that the hurricane of love which we tremblingly call God, will sweep in from a fresh angle, fulfilling our dreams by first shattering them, bringing something new out of the dangerous combination of personal hopes and cultural pressures. Do not be surprised if in this process there are moments when it feels as if, as though you are being sucked down to the depths 500 miles from the shore amidst 100-foot waves weeping for the dream that has had to die, for the kingdom that isn't coming the way you wanted it. That's what it's like when you get caught up in Jesus' perfect storm. Be sure when that happens, when you say with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, we had hoped, hmm, but now it's all gone wrong, that you are on the verge of hearing the fresh word, the word that comes when the storm is stilled, and in the great calm, we see a way forward we had never imagined. Foolish one, said Jesus, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and so enter into his glory? Who knows what might happen if one of you, ten of you, fifty of you, were to go through this holy week praying humbly for the powerful, fresh wind of God to blow into that combination of cultural pressure and personal aspiration so that you might share in the sufferings of the Messiah and come through into the new life he longs to give you. Who knows what God's power and God's glory will look like when they come upon tomorrow's world from an unexpected angle. Let us pray. Most merciful and gracious Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. As we walk through this Lenten season, help us to meditate on your word and ponder the journey Jesus made to Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. Grant us wisdom and grace and a grateful heart 
as we come to know and understand what you did and what you are doing in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Go in peace, serve the Lord.